Do you know who you are, church? Do you know who you are? Do you know what your identity is? We've been looking at it from the beginning of our series, but let me list to you four different scriptures here. God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, Colossians 1.13. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, 1 Peter 2.9. You are fellow citizens of the saints and members of the household of God, which grows into a holy temple in the Lord, Ephesians 2, 19 and 21. Ephesians 5, 8 says, You are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. As I opened last week with the Wing Feather Saga and the Fork Factory, we are not slaves of the world. Rather, we are citizens of the kingdom of God. In your mind, you should find that there is a striking contrast to who you are and who you've been made in Christ Jesus. It is as stark as darkness and light. What does the household of the children of light and the temple of God look like in comparison to a children's sweat factory or let's think of any other culture in the world what is the difference between that environment and the practices and the beliefs in the one place versus the other? This is really what we're driving at in this series finale. You get a two-part finale, just like my wife in The Bachelorette, two-part finale series. I had to embarrass her. The series so far has been to build an extended case, really, towards a covenantal view of the world and help you understand where your place of obedience is in this particular time. I meant I intended to give you a biblical framework, which may not fully occur as to what I've done, but will prove glorious in the coming years. The goal of this part of the sermon is to talk about fathers and really even more um, fundamental to this is uh, Christian enculturation, and I will get there in a minute. But what I want to do is review, since this has been, I think this is the fifth in the series of this small reprieve from Acts. So in review, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4 gave us the sort of grand building project of the church into full maturity throughout the world, which we still have yet to see the fruition of. And in chapter five, he begins to draw the implications of what it means then for us to be a part of this grand project, as it were, uh, the, the maturing of a man, or I've likened it to a cathedral. And <clears throat> what does that look like for us? And then he moves in chapter five to talk about, well, what does that mean in light of the fact you live in a sinful and fallen world? What does it look like? Well, you are lights in your generation. And then after that, we saw him move from the church sphere, as it were, into the home sphere and what it's supposed to look like when husband and wife are living in harmony. They are to picture the gospel in their interactions with one another. And then we looked at children and how important they are 
to the church and also to the kingdom of God as a whole. And now, in this last section, we come to the fathers specifically in this charge and also just the general look at the culture of the home and of the church. And I just say widely general Christian culture. But first, let us direct our attention at the text specifically. We never want to get too theological in the sense that we never want to be apart from the specific words of Scripture. The specific words that we're looking at today are chapter 6, verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. He had just used the word for parents, but here he doesn't, and he intentionally doesn't. This is something that he directs at fathers in relation to children, which might strike some of you and maybe should be. Why does he do this? Well, in similar fashion, he had done the same thing just before in terms of, in terms of wives. He addresses husbands and wives, but he puts a particular responsibility as head of the wife or head of the household to the fathers and, and even gives us an illuminating sort of phrase and the pastoral type care that a husband is to give to his wife, which is uh, shepherding a, a leading and authoritative role in the scriptures. But these things, both husbands and wives and men being saddled with a particular portion of responsibility and fathers over children, we should recognize that Paul is drawing this together because there is a responsibility of headship over the home. No matter what happens in the home, whether it's with your wife or your kids or grandkids, whoever might be in your home right now, as the head of that home, you are responsible for what goes on there. Even if it's not your sin, it is your responsibility. So the men, we could look through the Old Testament for this if you wanted, but I think more commonly and maybe more familiar to us would be the pastoral qualifications. First Timothy chapter three and Titus chapter one, we are told that to Timothy, Paul says that the elder, the pastor, which is a synonymous term in the New Testament, the pastor is to be uh, one who has managed his household well. He has a, a managerial task in his household because an elder is to manage God's church. That is to manage the household of God. And thus we understand God makes a clear parallel between the created nature of men and their function in both the home and the church, an authoritative role. Husbands or fathers, both of you, even though this is directed particularly at, at fathers at this particular time, this role, whatever place you find yourself in, is entrusted to you as your duty. You are the head of your home. And God grants you that authority so that you might specifically rule it for his glory. There's a authority given, and then a function, and then a goal. And these things all take place one after another. And so we should say, with authority comes corresponding responsibility. When you get a promotion, you get more responsibility. And same is said when your children increase in the home. When you go from husband and wife, 
you have authority and responsibility. When you have kids, you're, you get blessing and responsibility simultaneously. You get all of these things. <clears throat> we should understand and broadly be able to zoom out and say, well, why doesn't Paul address women here? And this is because they're not forgotten, but rather they're wives first before their mothers. All of you, hopefully, are were wives first before your mothers, and therefore, in addressing fathers as head, Paul assumes the roles and responsibilities of the mother, and he doesn't feel any need to repeat himself. Because, well, I don't think he had to. In our day and age, I think feminism has so infiltrated the church and probably all of our experience that it bears repeating, and so... I will do so right now and make it explicit. The, the wife takes a submissive and supportive role in everything her head is called to do. That's what the woman was created for. So she is supporting and helping him when he has husband. And so it follows that when he becomes father, she's actively contributing to the support and the maintenance of the children, the upbringing and the rearing, though the burden of the responsibility in terms of who's accountable, falls to the man. Secondly, in light of this, we must understand that Paul doesn't mean for mothers not to be a part of child rearing, but actively involved, yet he didn't have to say it at that time. Further, for us, just in application, we have to realize that there's a certain like-mindedness that is called for here. If there's a husband and wife operating together and the husband is to lead and have authority over his home and the wife is su- supposed to support that, because of the task that is given, they must have great and harmonious agreement, uh, both on the physical requirements that are there in raising children and the spiritual and ethical requirements that are there. They, they must be in accord with one another. How, how could a wife do this if her opinion is diametrically opposed to her husband's? That just leads to fighting and to disagreeing and insubordination on, on her part. Therefore, it's the duty of every Christian, both husband and wife toward one another and their children that they would both resolve conflict and walk harmoniously together in the raising of their children to be like-minded. That's a necessary requirement. Husbands have to be willing to do their part and so as to live with their wife in an understanding way as they lead and wives must submit in reverence to Christ. The gospel produces harmony in marriage And it is the only thing that will allow us to walk faithfully in the raising of children and or grandchildren. And the question that you probably all have is, how is this done? And I'm going to tease you, that's next sermon. Right now, let us think about spiritual responsibility for children. This is point two. We first find in verse four that fathers are said not to provoke their children to anger, but to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. For sake of time, 
I'm not going to cover the negative aspect of this, the not provoking anger. I've done that in Colossians, and you can go back to my sermon there. And if you get a clear presentation of the positive requirement, then I think you can do the work of application and say what all of that means for your particular situation. So the first thing that we are told is that the father is in charge to make sure that the children are, as the ESV says, are brought, brought up in something. That is, the children are reared, is the English term we use in a particular way. Ectrepho, it means nourish. We actually see this in verse 29 of chapter 5. No one ever hates his own flesh, but this word, nourishes. In this other context, it is rightly translated brought up. It's child rearing. But yet it's not disconnected. And it's helpful for us to understand that this is in other places, like in chapter 5, connected with the, the provision of physical and bodily needs for the wife and and the husband and so too the the needs of the children are in mind specifically we all assume the physical part but what paul is driving at here is not just the daily provision of the body and the nourishment of it in food but rather something else something in the spiritual instruction look here it says bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. There are a few different translations out represented other than the ESV. ESV says discipline and instruction. King James says nourish, uh, nurture and admonition. NIV says training and instruction. I think I memorized the NASB maybe some point, fear and admonition. But whatever your translation, the variation that's here, sometimes variation is due to difficulty in terms of what it means. That's not the case here at all. Rather, what we have is we have a particularly potent and freighted word. One word which is full of meaning that's hard to get at the specific specifics of it and therefore you need a preacher and not just a translator sometimes and this is one of those words the word that paul uses here is he wants parents to bring their children up in the paideia of the lord the paideia of god paideia is not like a generic term like like lectern or pulpit or a bible meaning book it it doesn't it's not very Um, basic like that. Rather, I like Doug Wilson points out that this word paideia is more like democracy or philosophy or even culture to us Americans. It actually has a really full meaning such that it carries a lot of weight and is hard to narrow down because the word itself communicates not only one little thing, but it communicates a whole ideology. It communicates a whole mindset about what the responsibility of parents to children are, there's a huge volume, <clears throat> which Doug Wilson summarizes in a, in a fantastic sermon. I'm pulling it from him at this point. Uh, paideia is a very, very common word. Arguably, you couldn't understand 
uh, Greco-Roman or, or gr- the society of Greece, ancient Greece, without understanding this word paideia. It is a, a, a monumental ideological task. So <clears throat> Warner Yeager has on this one little word has a three volume uh, usage throughout all of the secular literature as well as into Christian literature. But Paideia is argued that they were concerned when the secular Greeks were using this, they were concerned with nothing less than the shaping of the ideal man who would be able to take his father's place in the ideal culture. So even further, the idea of Paideia is to, in rearing your children, to bring that culture about, to change the fabric of society or to maintain it. So Paul here, in light of that, commissions Christian households to insinuate their children into a robustly Christian culture, into a home life that is distinctively Christ-exalting and honoring, where the living and breathing of life in the home is the life and breath of the Spirit of God. It is thoroughly dominated by the scriptures and prayer and singing and all of these things we are commanded to do. This is the idea that's being communicated here. It is enculturation, which means if we're going to think about this broadly, applies not only to fathers, but for mothers in the task. And also, as I preached to the children last week, to to the children, it's your participation because Our families are supposed to represent the kingdom of God on earth and something distinct and different from the world. Our houses are not to be mixed with pagan gods or any of the like or pagan ideas, which many of them in Christian households throughout the country are. But this is the call radically to be have a culture that is dominated by Christ. <clears throat> and in secular culture, we know that it's dominated by idolatry. And so what happens, the movement actually, you could go backwards as it were from Ephesians chapter 6 and 5 backwards because it's a move from the church into the world. You could go backwards and say, well, where does this all start? How does that working of the gospel through the world. How does it start? Well, it starts in the home, in individual hearts and works into the world. That's the movement. It moves out from us here where we worship the living God and are transformed and we move out into the world and thereby see the change in our wider culture. In other words, our homes are to be like institutions which train children to be ideal Christians who create distinctly Christian culture, Christian art, music, painting, whatever, law, science, business, education, whatever, Christian culture. This is nothing other than a call to do what Paul says elsewhere, is to do all things to the glory of God, whether you eat or whether you drink. You can eat or drink like a Christian or not. That's a category you should have in your mind. That's why Paul can elsewhere say that 
when you pray, even your meals set apart is holy unto the Lord. So some of you need to have a definition of culture since I'm throwing around that word. Merriam-Webster defines culture as customary beliefs, social forms, and material traits of a racial, religious, or social group. Just basically everything that describes a particular people. Anything. All that they believe, all that they do, all that they practice in a, in a formal form and informal form, everything that they do is culture. That's what we're talking about. And further, it also includes in the definition the integrated pattern of human knowledge, belief, and behavior that depends on the capacity for learning and transmitting knowledge to a successive generation. Don't we have that right here? That's right. We have the passing on of Christian virtue, Christian knowledge, Christian lifestyle, Christian culture to our children. That's, that's the call in this particular text. And it's a, a house-wide endeavor as your children profess faith and are baptized and participate in the Lord's Supper, they become a very active member of creating this culture along with us. Another way to think about culture, because I'm trying to be, be broad, I, I want us to understand the wider implications of this text, which is <clears throat> culture, in a sense, is just religion externalized. Religion in the public sphere. Now, all mankind is, in every culture, is inescapably religious. So also, too, is the home. And so also, too, is each and every individual. All mankind has been made in the image of God. Fundamentally, that means what we are is worshipers. That's what we do. You, you cannot explain human action, human belief, human practice of any sort apart from the idea that the Bible communicates that we are worshipers. And, and what is the problem is there's been a great corruption of sin. And so an inescapable part of who we are and cultures are, on a wider sense, a collective of peoples who believe and act similarly, these are characterized primarily by idolatry, by not the worship of Christ, but some other God. Hence, the reason why the first and commandments are surrounding idolatry. This is fundamental to who we are, religious beings. And all humans serve either the true and living God, or they serve false gods and even demons unwittingly. There's, there's no other thing that exists. You might have friends who are not Christians and they think there's another thing, a neutral sort of space. Sorry to tell them or sorry to tell you that there's no such thing. The Bible doesn't hold that perspective. Christ says you are either for me or against me. There's no neutral party. You either wield the sword for Christ or against him. And so our job as Christians is to actively recognize that we are to promote and I wouldn't say indoctrinate because that implies something negative, but rather enculturate our homes and our families into every part of its action and belief to be Christian. 
And the question for us in terms of culture and whether or not, uh, well, the question is this, is not a whether, but a which. It's not whether somebody will serve a God, they do. It's which God will they serve? And so as I speak in an increasingly hostile American culture, we have to recognize that as we try to actually perform this, that we'll become even more antithetical to what the culture is and does. We will be actively, how do you say this? We'll be actively, um, I don't know, overthrowing the culture as it were, by being robustly Christian in our homes. And so as you're thinking about this wider picture of, of creating culture, not only for children, that, that is key, that's fundamental. I'm not hugely touching on all the implications for that today, but I think we can pull directly from Joshua in his old age and say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's the same emphasis that is here in this text, and that should be what you get tattooed on you men, if you have any in mind. We will serve the Lord, period. Wife, you will pray with me. Children, you will pray with me. Children, you will be catechized. Wife, you will be led and shepherded. You will come to this and that. We will serve Christ. So, two more proofs, if you're skeptical. Jesus affirms Moses. He is asked, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus famously quotes Deuteronomy um, in, in the Shema. You shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart and your soul. And Jesus says, mind, but might, might, mind, strength. You shall love your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And what is amazing is that text is right then followed up with the command then to, you shall teach them diligently, that is how to love God in mind, heart, soul, in every way, to your children. And you shall talk with them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Moses, through the Holy Spirit, exhausts the categories for how this is to be done. It's a task which never stops, but permeates every aspect of family life from top to bottom and bottom to top. You recognize when you see Moses speaking like this at Paideia is just the biblical way of talking about enculturating civilizations to Christ, specifically starting in the home. They, we are to enculturate children in our our homes um, in a way that cannot be reduced to merely schooling, nor merely to the church sphere, nor to the home sphere. Our children should be shown how to be a Christian and have a robust Christian worldview at the dining table on the couch, when we drive in the car, when we go into the grocery store, on our beds at night, and we w- when we wake up to God's Son in the morning because God faithfully keeps covenant and He rises and sets the sun at the same time or in their cycles religiously. God is ordering 
everything and we are to have every part of our knowledge. There is no history apart from history that acknowledges Christ. There's no eating that is faithful eating apart from knowing Christ. There's no faithful husbanding or raising of children unless it's done specifically for the express purpose of exalting Christ. A father's job and a mother's, of course, as I've been talking about it here, a home, our job is totalizing. There's not one space that's supposed to be untouched. Meaning that every word of God is for every detail of our life. That's how you should think about everything. And we shouldn't be surprised, right? When Jesus, what he says to the church The church sphere rather than the home sphere is in Matthew 28, the Great Commission. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, or literally disciple the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. This means that there's nothing more totalizing for what the church is responsible to do. Disciple all. All the nations, all of them, Brazil, any any nation you can point out on the map, North Korea, they are certainly not discipled right now. The gospel is supposed to disciple them, and it begins in the home. We are to baptize and teach everything. We are to communicate and enculturate all the nations to Christ. That's the task. Now, whether or not you see that is a victorious task or something that Christ will do specially apart from the church is a different subject. Nonetheless, the marching orders are the same. Great Commission says, make the whole world Christian. That's what it says. Now, how is that going to be done? Well, I think the book of Acts proves that. It's by the spirit of Christ being poured into us for the accomplishment of that mission. But now I turn in my sermon to application, and I will be uh, intentionally principial. And I'm just going to use an extended analogy because I want to give you all the details all at one time in one sermon about a particular course about how to do this and how the elders have talked about doing this. All of this has been my way of getting to next sermon But let me just say, in terms of our job to enculturate um, both this church and our homes and our own souls to everything about Scripture and Christ so that we can farm in a godly way and we can think in a godly way, what we are to do here is not the how, but, but the principle that I'm getting at. And I'm going to do an extended garden analogy. So first, the head, the husband, the father, is the one who is to plant and oversee the culture of the home specifically. We should ascertain the fact that culture is an inevitable part of what we do. Because it just simply describes what we believe and what we practice and how we pass on what we believe and practice to our children. Okay? And so cultures happen in the home, in the church, in businesses, etc. Men, the Lord has placed the particular responsibility squarely on your shoulders as head of the home 
and has granted you authority so that you might make a Christian culture in your home to plant it and to oversee it. You are in charge of that in your house. Some men, maybe lots of men, scatter seed willy-nilly. And whatever culture comes up from that, well, that's just what it is. That's what we do. But that produces an incoherent and directionless vine. We want to be master gardeners, as it were, and to plant specifically and intentionally what needs to be growing in our homes, whether that be more prayer or more learning about the Christian faith or more working unto the glory of God and less time off or whatever it might be. Secondly, wives must water and fertilize the culture. Wives, as your men deliberately set their minds and hearts to planting spiritual seeds in your home, your job is to fertilize those seeds and to help water them. If he's been tasked to plant them and oversee them, you're involved in the process of maintaining and cultivating these things. This culture cannot be successful without husband and wife specifically together. It will fail if it's just the wife um, with a deadbeat husband. Well, we'll pray for you and that will be particularly difficult or vice versa. If it's a husband with a stubborn wife, that'll be extremely difficult for you as well. We, we want to see gospel-oriented homes that are intentionally sowing the seeds of Christ into their culture. Wives, don't sit on the patio and criticize how bad of a planter your husband is and watch, from, watch as the plants wither and die. Don't put any poison into the water as well when you go to water the culture. Whatever good your husband seeks to do, come alongside and assist him. Bear the water can and pour out your very own life to create a flourishing culture for Christ. Don't be a thorn thorn in the side, but put in good work with him for the sake of the kingdom. Lastly, some of you, I'm sure, as I'm just speaking principally, you can think about maybe ways that you need to either start a new culture or reform your culture. Semper Reformanda is one of my favorite slogans from the Reformation, always reforming. And maybe some of you don't have enough space in your garden to to plant and to tend some more spiritual seeds that need to go in. You might have to uproot plants that are fully grown and say, there's better ones to be planted. Some seeds are superior to others. Maybe you're doing a good thing, but you need to do a better thing. This cannot be determined by anything else but the word of God itself. Maybe you have got some good seeds going, but you need to invest more sweat equity into them and to pour into them a a little bit more so they might become more robust and and, uh, might create a bigger harvest. I call all of you as we think about our homes to make a sober assessment of the culture in your home and compare it to other really healthy gardens, as it were, and to say, well, does our home look like that? And should it? Why does it not? What are we not doing? What do we need to do? How do we assess what this looks like? Do we have a, a home that looks like a city that's blossoming or is it stifled? and needing of renovation.
is our garden worthy for us as, as it were, priests in the garden? If we've been called to a royal priesthood, as we read in the beginning, is our home, the garden of our home, worthy for God to come walk by and commune with us there? <clears throat> or does it need some improvement? My exhortation to you fathers specifically is to pray and ask that you be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding and that you might walk in a manner worthy of the living God as your duty towards your home. And I will pray along with you that through his spirit, he might grant you a glorious harvest in your home of spiritual fruit from your wife and your children. To that end and waiting on all the other things I want to say, let us pray.